is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me as always is my co-host Megan Bojarski. Hi. And together we will guide you through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever, covering every theatrical feature-length Disney film that has ever been made, and maybe will ever be made if we get that far. But anyway, this episode we'll be looking at yet another film that has been in production for decades. If the 40s was filled with shorts cobbled together into full films, the 1950s was full of ambitious dreams that had taken far too long to come to fruition. This trend continues with 1953's Peter Pan. And I think you remember all the way back to our Reluctant Dragon episode, we were amazed by the fact that the character designs back in that 1941 movie for Peter Pan and Captain Hook were like basically ready to go. So it's it, it feels like we're coming full circle. Obviously, a lot happened, as we've talked about with the studio, with the strike. A thing called World War II happens in, in the middle of all this. And so I think Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan and the addition of the live action stuff, this is really a, a, a full-on new era for the studio. It's also been really fun to watch some of these films that we kind of know in isolation where we can now go back and say, okay, I can see the strikes as they happened in this movie, and I can see where World War II changed things, and the addition and subtraction of some of the key Disney players. They're all in some of these major 50s films that we're going to be covering over the next several weeks. Yeah, and I think even small things like recognizing Catherine Beaumont's voice from Alice to Peter Pan, whereas, like, you know, as a kid, I was like, oh, it's a British girl. Like... (laughs) But now knowing they are actually the same person and being able to hear Alice in Wendy, watching them chronologically, was actually really fun this time. I've really enjoyed getting to, you know, see her career, follow the acting career of our early child stars with Luanna Patton and, of course, Bobby Driscoll. I I think that it's just really fun to be able to see not just Walt's trajectory, but the company and some of their favored actors and voice actors. There's just, there's so much to talk about. With that in mind, this is likely going to be a two-part episode. There's just so much that we can talk about with Disney as a whole, but especially with this film. This is going to be a two-part episode. You'll be able to check in next week for all of our final thoughts, for the legacy, and for everything else that we don't get to this time. But all of that said, let's start by just pulling back to us. So... This is actually one of the very few Disney movies that I know a lot about. And I have a lot of experience with at least the story of Peter Pan, which I can talk ad nauseum and probably will. But let's start off with you, uh, Ryan. 
So you are our, you know, resident Disney aficionado. What is your experience with this film? And I am desperate to know what, if anything, from this film was on the Disney sing-alongs, because this is not a film with super memorable songs. Yeah, I will answer both of those questions. I'm going to answer the second one first so that I don't forget. So You Can Fly was definitely on them. That might have been the like title song of one of the tapes. Uh, Following the Leader, I also remember very vividly because they, from what I remember, they mostly, they minimized the Native American characters even in the late 80s. So that, w- that was definitely on there. I think those were the only two. There might, A Pirate's Life might have been on there because I know the Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, Pirate's Life for me from the Pirates of the Caribbean ride was on one of the tapes I had. And they might have used A Pirate's Life as like an intro to that, but I could that could just be my fragmented splicing things together. But I definitely remember You Can Fly and Following the Leader. And so to me, this movie does have iconic songs, at least those two, because I know those two very, very well. This is my Peter Pan, for lack of a better metric. Like This was certainly my first exposure to Peter Pan as a kid. I have not read the original source text. I've never seen a production of the stage play, even one that was like recorded for, you know, home viewing or, or, or the TV adaptation of it. I have not seen those. I have seen Hook many, many, many times, which came out when I was five, I think. I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I, I definitely like that Hook was a tape that we owned also, along with Peter Pan. So so my Peter Pan is is this movie. Hook is the sequel to this movie, in my experience. And that is most of my Peter Pan knowledge, I would say. This is another one of those weird, quirky episodes where I am officially the expert on this story. Although not on this movie, oddly enough. As I was doing the research and watching this film, I had this creeping sensation that I've mentioned a couple of times that I don't know that I've actually watched this movie before, despite the fact that I remember so much of this movie. And it's it's a little bit like Alice in Wonderland for me in that I'm sure I must have seen it. I know everything in it, but it just doesn't feel right. I never loved Peter Pan as its movie. I will say I know we had and own the 2003 live action adaptation, which is not Disney. I will say that as I went through, there were certain moments where I'm like, no, that's not how this happens. It was like this. And I've I've discovered that that was the 2003 version, just kind of merging in my head. I think I somehow have the plot of the 2003 version, but the animation of the Disney version, and those just like collected in my head. And I also, I think if, If you stick me to true Disney movies, so not Disney Channel, but true Disney movies, Return to Neverland, the like 2002 direct-to-video sequel, was like my favorite movie as a kid, which is not something you're ever going to hear from any other person in existence. So oddly enough, between the non-Disney live action and Return to Neverland, I think I just kind of imagined that I knew this movie, but I then got very connected with Peter Pan, especially because of one of my friends, Victoria. As I watched Once Upon a Time, Peter Pan is a huge element of that. We'll talk about it later. 
So I fell kind of in love with Hook. I've read all the fan theories of evil Peter Pan, which we'll again talk about later. And then in preparation for this, I've read the book. And I have the sneaking suspicion that I read that when I was a kid as well, because there's certainly elements that I like know that I can't track down to any other version. So Peter Pan is, is one of those stories that I actually know extremely well, although apparently through everything but Disney's version, as odd as that one is. Fun fact for you, by the way, Return to Neverland, and I, I'm 99% sure about this, but if I'm wrong, please feel free to correct me, anybody who is listening in. I believe that that was Disney's second ever theatrically released sequel to an animated film that they made because they had done, because that's 2002. So by that point, they've done like Return of Jafar and Pooh's Grand Adventure and like the Beauty and the Beast Christmas movie and, and other, other ones like that. But after Rescuers Down Under came out in the early 90s, this was the like, I believe, like I said, this was the first time they released a sequel to a previous, like, to previous animated film in the theater, which is really interesting. I've never seen it. I find it wild that, like, you had seen that movie many, many times and not the original, which is, it's just interesting. And, you know, it's, it's so funny how things, how things change, because 2002, I'm, I'm in high school. I'm, you know, very excited for, at that point in time, the the Matrix sequels <laughs> that were coming out. And I was like, not that I ever totally gave up on like kids movies or, or Disney entirely, but that was probably at the, like the lowest point of my interest across my entire life of being like, that's, that's for kids. I'm, I've put those things aside now. And so it's just, it's just really interesting to think about that. And then how much things have changed where in the streaming era, at least in the last, you know, four years of Disney plus existing, the original Peter Pan is just as accessible that as Return to Neverland is, but it's very possible that like, you know, Peter Pan was maybe in the vault when that came out on tape. And then, so that's why you had it and you hadn't seen the original. Like it's, it's just interesting to think about all these things, you know, as we're talking the history of the company and the way that it's evolved itself over the years. It's just interesting how our relationship with media has changed. Where like, you know, back in the day, like there, you know, you might say back in the day, in the 90s and 2000s you would miss an episode of a show and you would just watch the next episode and unless it was like sweeps week where they'd be like you know you know there's like a cliffhanger the week before and one of the main characters might die you have to watch it then you have to wait for the whole next season to see how it resolves like unless you caught something on a rerun like you missed that episode of friends forever and now the idea of starting a show in the middle of its run I can't do it. I'm like, if I'm going to watch a show, I have to watch it from the beginning. It's kind of fascinating in the current era to talk about these kinds of things, because like you said, they're all super accessible. I did just look. So the last time that Peter Pan was released theatrically was 1989, before it was kind of released again in uh, 2013 for a, a limited run. That being said, it was put out on DVD at the same time as Return to Neverland because they wanted kind of people to buy the twofers. So it was not, oddly enough, in the vault. Granted, I was I was six in 2000 and, uh, or sorry, I was five in 2002. So I'm 
I might have caught it on Disney Channel. That might be what it was, that they were playing the sequel, but they weren't playing the original. But as a, as a brief tangent on the realm of, you know, watching things in such weird orders, I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer on ABC Family, which is now Freeform, I believe. I, I could be wrong on that. No, you're right. That, that you're right on. So when I was watching it, as I recall, we, we were in the early day. We had recordings, but for whatever reason, sometimes the networks would record things weird or, or whatever. So I saw two out of every three episodes of Buffy from seasons one to four. And then I think Netflix came out and Buffy was on that and I watched it from there. So to this day, I go back and there are episodes of Buffy that I don't know, despite the fact that I have episodes memorized in the later seasons. So I remember they brought in a new Slayer and then like the next thing I knew, she just didn't exist anymore. And then there was another one and she was, you know, friendly, but then she was bad and I didn't know what was going on. And I, I do specifically remember the, the alternate Slayers being a very confusing period to be missing every few episodes. But yeah, that was just kind of what life was. If they only aired or if the, the TV only recorded uh, two out of every three episodes, you just learned to be confused with Buffy the Vampire Slayer like I did. And so I'm, I'm sure it's, it's something like that with Disney where I, I must have known what it looked like because the visuals are all right. I definitely know like every bit of Return to Neverland. And I know that I was a little too old for the Disney Fairies collection. But, oh God, the Pixie Hollow video game. It wasn't a video game. It was like, it was like an open world. It was one of the like only kid-friendly MMORPG type things. Like slightly above Club Penguin, but like far below like World of Warcraft kind of level. I do remember thinking that was the coolest thing in the world. So I had, I had very much a roundabout experience of, of Peter Pan and, and its Disney connections, particularly. This makes me very excited to talk about many Di Disney video games when we get later on, especially I had a very, uh, I, I had a fondness for the Hercules one that I, that was a CD-ROM, but that's a story for another time. Uh, <laughs> oh, I need to know now. You'll have to tell me later. I'll, I'll have to find a video. Like, I'm sure there's a YouTube video about it where you can watch somebody play it. But I had, anyway, I have distinct memories of that. That was right in the time where they were trying to make everything 3D, but not everything was actually 3D in video games. Yeah, I mean, the whole, it's just, it's so interesting. And, and I, that's part of the genesis of this project is to fill in all the gaps in my Disney knowledge. And some of that is seeing movies I've never seen before, as I'm doing a bunch of times this season and will be for, you know, for a long time in the future. And then also digging into the making of these movies that I grew up with and not knowing any of these backgrounds because to me, this was just Peter Pan. And so once again, we have to roll back the clock. Very far. <laughs> 50 years before this movie that we're talking about. So over 100 years ago, back in Marceline, Missouri, one of Walt Disney's early childhood defining experiences was playing Peter Pan in the stage play. And it's just so interesting that Snow, like that Snow White came first, <laughs> I guess, because 
like he talks about having heard the story of Snow White as a kid and really, really loving it. But I mean, playing Peter Pan in a play, it has to have had a huge impact on Walt in his you know, for his entire life, really. Like that's not something that you sort of forget. You know, and apologies in advance for how many times I flub saying Peter Pan during this episode, especially when I'm trying to do more like playing Peter Pan <laughs> is weird, a weird turn of phrase, apparently. So that's something to look out for. It's kind of wild. He's quoted as saying next to Snow White, I cared most for Peter Pan. But like you said, he had such an early defining experience. He's talked about it in several interviews and we kind of get two stories one of which has been pretty much proven to be wrong, and one of which uh, only Roy could ever tell us that it wasn't true, and he didn't. So uh, we're going back into the Disney legends of God knows what actually happened, but Walt liked to tell a good story. So Walt claims that the production that he first saw Peter Pan in was actually a traveling version of basically the original American play with Maude Adams in the starring role. People have since proven that that is impossible, that that was not happening at the time. So he probably just saw a different one and basically didn't understand that actors can play other roles, especially in a touring company. But he claims that he saw it with, with the original actress. And then of course that he played it himself. And I personally like that one of his quotes was, he thinks that he got to experience it better than the original J.M. Barry play version because Roy hooked him up to a rope so that he could fly. And it was this great moment for him that he was flying through the sky and then the rope broke and he went flying into the audience. And I both am <laughs> highly skeptical and am willing to believe it 100% having come from a theater background myself. I love the idea. I know that when my high school put on Cinderella, there was a scene where they put on the shoe and then she did like a flip and the glass slipper flew into the audience and hit somebody in the head. So it happens, but I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I feel like that might've been Walt uh, kind of building it up higher than it really was, but it certainly kind of ties into this idea that it was this formative experience for him so much so that he even said no actor ever identified with the part he was playing more than I, which I think uh, many method actors from the last 20 years would like to argue with him on that one. But uh, at least at his point in time, I, I think we definitely get the sense that this was maybe one of the last of Walt's like heart and soul projects that he needed to do. Yeah, certainly one of his last heart and soul projects when it came to animated feature films, the rest of his heart and soul projects being restricted, of course, to model railroads and theme parks and television <laughs> experiences. But, but no, I, it really, this is a core part of Walt. And I'm, I'm curious to see how much he's involved through the animated films that we're going to keep talking about through his lifetime uh, the Jungle Book being the last one that he was alive for the production of. And so, you know, when the company started succeeding, Walt told Roy that he wanted to make Peter Pan their second feature film after Snow White, which totally makes sense. But I think part of it was the complicated rights status of Peter Pan. So Walt had bought the rights uh, to the play version in 1939. He'd actually been trying to get the rights since 1935, 
but it took four years to get settled. So in 1929, original author Jan Barry gave all the rights to Peter Pan to the great Ormond Street Hospital, and the British government passed a special law to keep that right with the hospital forever, uh, which is something I am at least mildly aware of uh, because it is mentioned towards the beginning of Hook because Maggie Smith in that movie plays the original Wendy and they're giving like a banquet in her honor and it's all tied together with the original story and, and everything else. But film-wise, Paramount had had the film rights in 1935 because they had produced a silent film version in 1924. And so Walt sort of had to negotiate, uh, when I say Walt, Walt's lawyers had to negotiate through uh, how to actually get the rights to be able to make the movie balancing uh, the Great Ormond Street Hospital, Paramount's rights to it, and pulling together it so that he could legally make Peter Pan. Walt had had a, uh, a Leica reel prepared in 1939 uh, and had spent $200,000 in story development by 1943. Just as a comparison for another long gestating project that we already talked about a few weeks ago, over that same time frame, Alice in Wonderland had gotten $15,000 in development money. So I think that sort of proves out Walt's attachment to Peter Pan and his insistence for Peter Pan. And we talked a lot in the Alice episode about how Walt sort of felt almost backed into a corner by the end. By the time they were actually making that movie, he felt like he had to make it more than he wanted to make it. And it seems like all the way through, this was one that he was passionate about. Yeah, I think that with this one, if there was any kind of dragging his feet, it was, it's not everything I want it to be yet, but there are limitations to the world. This was definitely one that I was kind of surprised by being a Walt project. So if you read kind of the biographies on Walt, you see Alice in Wonderland popping up over and over and over in his career. So I really thought that was going to be like the big heart and soul Walt project. And it, it was in some ways. But as we see with just the money there, Peter Pan was something that he was willing to invest so much more in. In part because the story flows a little bit more naturally than Alice in Wonderland. I think it's easier to kind of hold on to. And in part because he didn't really stick that close to the original story. And so he was able to kind of blend himself and J.M. Barrie. And this is talked about in a lot of the production materials. They had actually put out a kind of preview slash how it was made video called The Story of Peter Pan, which anyone can watch on YouTube, by the way, where he kind of talks about how it came together. And in all of these promotional materials, they basically said, like, there once was a visionary and his name was J.M. Barry, and he created imagination and he tried as hard as he could, but he couldn't make it come to life. But then came a man named Walt Disney. And that's that's basically all of the stuff for it, where basically they're saying that Walt was able to basically bring to life all of the the imaginativeness and the joy that was in, you know, the original Peter Pan idea, which I find in many ways, yes, obviously the ability to have flight and to have the fairies, as we'll talk about, was such kind of a groundbreaking thing. But he deviates from the original story in so many ways that it's actually kind of funny, especially in ways that it didn't need to happen. We'll talk through some of the alternate versions in a couple of minutes, but kind of the biggest thing is that like, so the, the original novelization was not called Peter Pan. 
although if you're looking for it today, you'll be looking for Peter Pan. It was called Peter and Wendy. And arguably, Peter Pan was not the protagonist of this book. Wendy was absolutely the protagonist. It's, it's really about, you know, how amazing mothers are, and she's doing her best, and he's a creep. He is, like, actively shown to be kidnapping people, to be murdering people. In some places, it's fun in the, like, adventure story ways, and in other ways, it's really dark. So, like, in the Disney movie, as it ends up being, the kids are basically gone for, like, three hours, and their parents never know they're gone. Or they dreamt it. It's a little bit up to the imagination. In, in the original, like, they were gone for weeks. Like, the parents were grieving. The mother spent, like, every day crying in the nursery. The father did a whole thing where he had tied up Nana and he felt so bad for not listening to her instincts that he lived in her kennel for weeks. Like, this is... This is kind of a heart-wrenching thing where these parents have lost their children. And in the movie, it's like, no, it's fun. It's, we're all going to have imagination and fly. And Peter is actively murdering people. At the end, it is kind of documented that between Peter and the Lost Boys, including John and Michael, they kill like 15 pirates in like 20 minutes. Like there, there's, there's a lot of darkness in the original book uh, that's kind of play, played as fun, but there's, there's definitely some more sinister things. There's talk of basically when the, it, it's not the everyone stays young in Neverland that we kind of know today. They grow up and if they grow up too much, Peter kills them uh, or at least lets them die. It's, it's not outright shown with him killing people but it is, it is heavily implied, and it's also outright stated that basically he will cut the people into pieces, like the Lost Boys, and, and I'm, there's so much more that I'm, gonna t that I'm not going to talk about today, but, but just one quick thing is that their hideout, basically instead of being able to get through kind of like under a river and into like one tree area, they all have trees that they can use to access their hideouts, but they have to fit the trees. And if they don't, Peter will cut them until they do, which is a very, like, grim version of Cinderella kind of vibe. So, so yeah, I, I will probably bring up other things about the book later, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more in our special episode that will be coming at the end of this season about kind of the different adaptations of the story. But long story short, it was very dark. And the movie flirted with that, but definitely didn't do it more than, like, the first creepy images of Peter on the top of their house. Yeah, I, I was definitely struck by that first image of Peter where the light sort of is just shining across his eyes and he looks a lot more menacing and even more more mischievous towards the kids, I would say, than he does anywhere else in this movie. The only thing I want to bring up from the book that's in your notes, because I have not read the book myself, is that apparently Wendy has a pet wolf in Neverland. Yes, I um, love it. And how has that not been in any of the adaptations that I'm aware of? They probably didn't want to deal with like training wolves. I I'm thinking live action. Why am I doing that? They totally could have had a wolf. Yeah, there were a few things that I kept going like, 
why didn't Disney do this? Wendy having a pet wolf is the most Disney thing I can think of. And it didn't happen. And I, I will say, I think that at least for the Disney version, it was in part because they considered having Nana come to Neverland with them. And in that version, why would Wendy get another dog? But yeah, that definitely should have been in some of the adaptations. My, my other thing I'm going to say, bouncing off of that, is that in the book, Peter basically says that he's visiting them because he listens to their mother telling stories, which in the movie, he says that he came to listen to Wendy telling stories. But in the movie, the stories that she's telling are of Peter Pan. In the book, it's literally Cinderella. I mean, it's various fairy tales, but they specifically name drop Cinderella, which would be such an easy thing to just drop in for 10 seconds in this movie that they could have added at the last minute that would have so well set up the fact that they just put out the Cinderella movie. So again, that's one of my things where I'm like, modern Disney would never have let that like pass them by. They definitely would have taken the opportunity to like name drop their own projects and to add in, you know, the pet animal companion. But I, I'm, I'm a little too enthusiastic about this book now, apparently. Well, I will say in, yeah, in, in the Renaissance era or after, they definitely would have done both a wolf and they would have referenced uh, Cinderella. But it was, it was a different time back when they were making this. It, it, is, it is interesting. I do like the touch that Peter Pan's main motivation at the beginning of the story is that the stories are about him and he just likes people telling fun stories about him as a character because he's nothing if not a narcissist. But yeah, going back to the production. So after getting the film rights, Walt was like, okay, we're, we're doing Bambi. After Bambi, we're going to take Peter Pan. And then it still obviously took a long time after that. But from an article in Brief Magazine in April of 1953, helpfully entitled for our podcast research purposes, Why I Made Peter Pan by Walt Disney, he said, quote, I was unwilling to start until I could do full justice to the well-loved story. Animation techniques were constantly improving, but they still fell short of what I felt was needed to tell the story of Peter Pan as I saw it. I will actually dispute this quote a little bit. Only because... I still think Pinocchio looks better than this movie. And I think what Walt is really saying, and I'm putting my, my Roy Disney hat on at the moment, is that the animation didn't look as the way Walt wanted it to for the amount of money that they could spend on this production. <laughs> and I think maybe that's what he's getting at. Although I did, in reading some of the materials of this, some of the animators did talk about how, you know, with Cinderella and Alice and Peter Pan, they were finally up to the level that they felt that they had gotten to prior to World War II, and that doing a bunch of the shorts and the package films had sort of taken the edge off. But I do think there's bright spots, you know, as we've talked about throughout that time period, where I think given the time and the resources you know, they could have made everything look as good as Pinocchio, but they, you know, but they were limited by, again, time and, and finances. Yeah, I can definitely kind of see how the time and finances was more of it. I also think it's a very Walt thing to do to be like, oh, it was all about artistic integrity instead of, you know, a strike and a war and people wanting money. But I, I do think that there is a little bit of the Pinocchio-like energy in the art here. 
in the beginning when we see going into the Darling's nursery, we kind of go in through their window. I was like, oh, that's that Pinocchio technique again. We're finally seeing like that we can kind of navigate these areas instead of just kind of having a still or slightly moving camera. The idea of being able to kind of go into rooms and through different spaces was back. And I don't think I've seen that since Pinocchio. There's one shot that does it in Cinderella that we talked about with the castle. Mm, yes. Uh, but it but it's very brief and it the backgrounds are nowhere near as detailed as they are in here or in Pinocchio. I I'm really looking forward to like three years from now when we're talking about like the Little Mermaid, and we're like, the animation's really good, but it's it's no Pinocchio. Because <laughs> I do feel like that will forever be the high bar for how good animation can look from Disney. So as we've alluded to, you know, the strike happens in 1940-1941. Go back to our Reluctant Dragon and Dumbo episodes if you want to hear more about the strike. And so after the strike, Peter Pan and the Wind in the Willows uh, were were two of the only features that the bank sort of allowed Walt to keep working on as they were trying to bring in budgets and keep everything tight. Walt dropped Wind in the Willows in November of 1941, although that would eventually come out before Peter Pan as part of The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in 1949. But Walt favored Peter Pan because he told Roy that it would have a similar budget to that project, but actually a better box office draw. There's so much time spent on development, and that's why so much of this episode is talking, is kind of tracing this history because this was one. It feels like the movie they worked on the longest, like the most number of hours over the longest time period. Walt's intention was to sort of stick close to Barry's vision as much as he could. For instance, he also took many inspirations from the 1924 silent film version, which Barry had been a consultant on. Jan Barry actually had died in 1937. And so he wasn't around for Walt to consult with on this project. But it is interesting that his, it seems like he has more reverence for the source material than he does for maybe any of the other things that we've talked about. Because I don't really remember them, Walt being like, well, we really have to stick to like what makes this story work in all of the details. Like I feel like for Pinocchio is vastly different. Dumbo is based on like a, a comic strip that was like a pack-in giveaway thing. It, it's really, those were about like, what's the core of the story? Like, what's the core emotional thing? And how can we build a story around this? And this feels like a different, a different sort of adaptation, if that makes sense. Well, they definitely had kind of this idea that they had to stick to the source. It was, it was almost like there was an imaginary source that they didn't have access to that they were trying to find. They, they kind of had this concept that Barry never quite got it right. The novelization, the play, neither of those were, were exactly what they wanted or what Barry had, had imagined. That Peter Pan was this idea kind of beyond all written description. And so they were trying to stay true to the, the vision of Peter Pan, even if that meant tweaking slightly from the source material. And again, one of the things in, that Walt talks about in Why I Made Peter Pan is that he actually used Barry's play notations and stage directions from when he was putting together the play version as his main direction. So he says, quote, 
his concepts of the characters and their reactions to magical events and strange circumstances gave us more insight into what he had in mind than the actual dialogue and scene description. So it, it becomes this interesting setting where Walt is trying to read the mind of a man who is, is no longer alive and came up with this idea, you know, decades before, but he's, he's kind of trying to get at this core idea of what Peter Pan is, which is ironically what I think most people nowadays have more than the source material. Kind of like I was saying with my Peter Pan experience, I know who Peter Pan is. I might not be able to tell you all the details of one adaptation or another, but I know who Peter Pan is. And I think that that concept was what Walt was really kind of trying to do right by. Yeah, and it, it's almost not taking the source text, but taking, like, like it's turning Peter Pan into folklore, almost as it is adaptation. And this is going to be a very weird tangent, but it actually reminds me of Tar, the Kate Blanchett movie from last year, because at the very beginning of that movie, when she's doing, like, the interview on stage, they're talking about her upcoming sort of reinterpretation or like re-scoring of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. And she talks about like, well, you know, to understand the symphony, I went through like all the letters that Mahler was writing at the time and used that to inform what the score, what Mahler wanted the score to sound like, which one is obviously just as presumptuous on Lydia Tarr's part as it is on Walt Disney's part. But I think this idea of going through ancillary material to sort of try and excavate and piece back together what might have been and trying to find like the the true intent behind all this stuff is just a, it's it's really interesting and it's so it's also so contrary to you know the way that we're taught to interpret stories like in English class like you're you know it, it it's actively against death of the author is I guess is what I'm trying to say where you're like well just like look at what's actually in the text and interpret it from there this is like, oh yeah, pull from the text, but also the play, his notes about the play, any letters he may have written about. Like it's it's really trying to almost like psychologically deconstruct Peter Pan and build it back up into this new version. It's very interesting. Just for everyone's reference, when we talk about Peter Pan, it did kind of have apocryphal texts. So there was the 1904 play, Peter Pan or the Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, and then the 1911 novel, Peter and Wendy. That's what we talk about. But there was also uh, a book that came out in 1902 that actually is where Peter Pan was introduced called The Little White Bird. And it had a sub book, which was then published in 1906 as Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens, which basically explains that all children used to be birds and then they get born as humans. And Peter was a baby who forgot that he wasn't still a bird, and that's how he flies. It's, it's wacky stuff. And then there is a sequel play called When Wendy Grew Up in Afterthought from 1908. All of that to say, there was a lot of weird material, but you get so much more if you dive into all of Barry's thoughts. The movie and musical Finding Neverland try to look at, you know, J.M. Barry's relationship with the various boys that eventually became his namesakes. There's also a lot of discussion of the fact that J.M. Barry 
in addition to the boys that he based his characters on, was highly impacted by the death of his brother when they were children, to the extent that his he would dress up in his brother's clothes and pretend to be his brother to make his mother happy. J.M. Barry is a weird dude. Go Go down that path at your own risk. But there is so much of kind of this psychological energy to it that Walt boiled down to this one quote from J.M. Barry that I personally hate, but that Walt loved and that very much ties in with his worship of Marceline, Missouri, which was nothing of significance ever happens to a person after the age of 12. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing that, so I, I might have a couple words wrong. But that was something that Barry said, and that tied back to kind of the idea of the boy who never grew up, which is such a big deal for Barry, and then of course for Walt as well, that I think to some extent they did all of this research, they found all of these details, and at the core of it Walt said, nothing of significance happens before someone turns 12. That is Peter Pan, and we're going to run with that. And it, it creates this really interesting situation like you said where it's it's the folklore of the character but not the actual details from the plays or from the books and it just it makes this kind of fascinating confusing source for you know Walt and his animators to be working with and for us to look back on now yeah it it's really interesting cuz i actually didn't know that there was that much apocryphal or other peter pan things that are not in the play or the novel that were out there. And it, again, it, it just reminds me of George Lucas doing the special editions for star Wars, where it's like, look, you thought that I was done with this, but actually, no, I have to make some tweaks and I have to make some adjustments. And the, obviously that's much easier to do when you're working with a play or prose than it is when you're working with film. But it, it's that same, it's that same creator mindset of why well, put this thing out there but like this one part's really bothering me that I really want to like address or, or, or fix or, or whatever. And it's just, it, it's really interesting that it's sort of one of these iterative creations and that, you know, Barry himself never did a definitive version of his own creation in Peter Pan. And maybe that's one of the reasons why the, you know, stage and movie versions, you know, I, I feel like I hear far more about the adaptations of Peter Pan than I do people reading the original text. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true, in part because it's hard to say what the original text is. I'm going back to the book, which was the last thing that Barry put together. So it's it's his most definitive work, if not, you know, the definitive work. But there were just so many different versions and so many different things that you kind of get the sense of Barry was trying to do what Walt wanted to do with Fantasia. That if it wasn't quite right now, we could make a new version. And, you know, the book, one other thing that the book sets up that is followed through in Return to Neverland and in, in some of the other adaptations is that it leaves Peter alone. So Peter, Peter is left alone and he returns to kind of find Wendy but years have gone by, and he realizes that she's not Wendy, she's somebody's mother now. And she has a daughter named Jane, and so Peter decides that he's going to take Jane, and they're going to go have adventures. 
and Jane's daughter will have adventures with him. And so I think there was kind of this sense that Peter Pan can go on forever, which is another thing that I think Walt handles best, or I say Walt, that the Disney company handled best with the idea that this is all a story that has happened before and will happen again. The idea that the darling father goes, you know, I think I've seen that pirate ship. There's this sense that if, if you don't have the perfect narrative of Peter Pan now, well, that's okay because he'll be back and we can put him through new adventures all over again. And that, you know, didn't necessarily come to fruition in Barry's life, but has certainly kind of come up over the course of the many adaptations. Yeah, and I, you know, I, having not read the book, I do know that the first line in this adaptation is also the first line, I believe, of the play or the book about, you know, this has all happened before and will happen again. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why I liked Hook so much as a kid, because I love the idea that this was a what if Peter Pan grew up story. And so it it's sort of flipping the script in its own way. And you get the idea that like, oh, these are the former Lost Boys. Like, you know, Maggie Smith was the original Wendy. And, you know, I think I think he's married to her granddaughter. Uh, just making sure I get the, the generations right. You know, and the fact that like, Maggie Smith is old enough to actually be close enough in age to the original when like it's it, it's just interesting to think about the continuity of time and then how timeless this version is and I think it's also interesting this being made in the 50s finally and released in the 50s finally looking at what's in this story where we have fairies and we have pirates and we have a caricature but Native American characters and, you know, movies that also came out from the Disney company recently had also involved pirates, these sort of adventure stories and between Treasure Island and Robin Hood and the Sword and the Rose. And and I would include this movie in it. Like we're talking a lot about adventure stories in this era. And I feel like that becomes sort of a mainstay of the Disney company in general. And I think making this story post-World War II almost makes more sense because it is about innocence and childhood. And so much of that has sort of been lost in the war and immediately post-war. So this coming out sort of in the middle of this, what we think of as the very like, you know, traditional nuclear family 1950s and, you know, harken back to the Victorian era, which is also a similar, you know, sort of traditional values era, I think actually makes a lot of sense when you really think about it. So even though Walt intended this to come out way earlier, I think it actually suits the the time period it did. It does finally get released in. There's a really kind of interesting dynamic here that I will argue with no good basis came from the fact that Walt did not have to fight in World War II, nor did at least a, a good portion of his animators, that it's actually kind of funny. If you trace back the animation history of this film, it started really dark. It started drawing on the darkest elements of the books. So one of the versions that they had considered basically has like the Lost Boys get frustrated so Peter actively plans to kidnap Wendy just to to make her their mother, their servant. And, and there's definitely some gender things to talk about there. But somehow, post-World War II, when we see so many people putting out darker works because they are struggling with kind of the torment that they saw, 
we get the lighter side of Peter Pan. We get dialing back on the darkness and getting the pure joy, the faith, trust, and pixie dust version of Peter Pan, not the version from the book who snuck into the darling's house and locked the window so that the children would think their parents abandoned them. He, he did, for the record, in the book, he, he eventually felt bad about that and, and undid it. But it, it actually goes, in some ways it fits the 50s so well, and in others it's oddly backwards of what we would expect for a country after one of the most brutal wars ever to happen. Yeah, and I think that's why it's interesting that it's, you know, 1953 and not like 1949. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a big sea change at some point in this, between the immediate post-war stuff where stuff is really dark and think of, of the best years of our lives and My Darling Clementine and a bunch of those other movies that came out immediately following the war where it was very fresh in people's minds. You know, I do think this is distant enough where they're like, Oh, like we're, you know, and we're making this for for children. And this feels more like a, a even closer to a children's movie than either Cinderella or Alice, I think, in my mind. And I think maybe it's because the adventure element, maybe that could be my gender take, because this is much, even though Wendy is kind of the essential character, this feels much more like a quote unquote boy movie to me than either of those two. And so that could be my own gender bias, just kind of you know, rearing its head. Yeah, I definitely think that the gender dynamic is something that is is fascinating to talk about, and I could go on way too long of a tangent about it. But in the book, Wendy being the mother was this, like, exalted position. There were definitely some, like, gender roles things, but, like, when she told the boys to go to bed, they went to bed. And when she told them what to do, they would do it. And she, you know, she gets concerned that Michael and John are going to forget their parents. So she starts giving them pop quizzes about their parents. And suddenly all of the children want to get, like, tests from Wendy. And it becomes this dynamic where she's really in control and living out her fantasy, where she can have a world of mermaids and fairies and her pet wolf who you know previously was only imaginary to the movie which is much more like i mean they make jokes about it at the expense of the indigenous peoples but as much as wendy gets frustrated at being told to get the firewood that's kind of what the lost boys want her for like her job is to cook and to like tuck them in and make them feel comfortable and safe at night and then be out of the way and not annoying during their like dangerous adventure-seeking times. So I think they definitely kind of converted it into a boy movie, where I think Peter Pan and Wendy is actually, if anything, a girl book in its original kind of iteration. All of that being said, I think there's definitely some interesting dynamics from both sides, where this definitely fits very well in the adventure stories side of the 50s, not in the little girls going on fantasy rides version of the 50s, despite technically being both of those stories. Yes. No, I, I, I definitely agree with you there. And I think thinking about this in the context of Treasure Island and those other movies and thinking about Walt being the driving force behind it, it 
it all kind of starts to come into place, you know, where Walt played Peter Pan. Peter Pan is, is the title character. He's the main character. You know, this movie isn't Peter and Wendy. This movie is Peter Pan. And I think, I think that sort of tips its hand a lot in that direction. Obviously there's a lot of gender dynamic stuff, you know, going on throughout this whole thing. And I think the way that, it's it's interesting that it's reversed from the book where in this, like the Lost Boys don't really listen to Wendy in, in, unless they specifically want her to do something for them. You know, she's not an authority figure. She she really is more of a servant who does things that a mother would do, but she is thought of as someone to serve them and not someone to be authority over them. I think is a really interesting... I think it says a lot about the men who made this movie (laughs) and maybe some not so flattering things about the men that made this movie. Uh, But once again, it's time for Mary Blair corner (laughs) because, you know, you were talking about the darkness in the concept art here and having looked up some of Mary Blair's concept art for this, like her paintings of skull rock are amazing. There's a concept art design of uh, captain hook that she does uh, that is extremely dark and sinister compared to the more comical and I would say foppish version of Captain Hook that we get uh, in this movie. And I always associate her with color and bright color uh, and geometric shapes. And this is much different. In the Walt Disney Archives book, one of the people quoted around her concept art compares her to Matisse in her use of color and that She's very careful about it, and the color, she will add pops of color even to dark scenes. But she is just as capable of dealing with the darkness as well as sort of the more the more pop and even neon colors that we saw in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, it definitely is kind of a reversal, but it just shows how amazing and talented, you know, Mary Blair is. By this point, as we said, you know, the designs for the characters were pretty much solid by 1941. But kind of the the greater design, the backgrounds, the what kind of angles we're getting these characters of, we really see kind of transitions from that throughout. And when I was watching this, I could definitely watch a scene and go, oh, this was this was drawn during this period. This was drawn, you know, during this other period. And, you know, there's a few story elements that don't really work, but you can see that in how dark do these characters look? How creepy are they? That was more Mary Blair inspired. Okay, now they're fun and and happy energy. Okay, that was something that they added more towards the 50s. And we definitely get kind of these, these multiple different angles to it. Especially interesting because they had... Essentially, as many of these films had, they had basically lead animators per character. And so when we talk about going from really dark to to much brighter, it's kind of funny to, to act as though one person could control all of that, when instead we had all of these different people who in charge of their own little stages of it that all kind of had to go okay, now we're dark, no, now we're light, now now we're funny, now we're sinister, you know, kind of jumping from one point to the other. That's actually one of the things I really like about this movie is the tone shifts. And, you know, I, I think back to watching it as a kid, and this was a movie that, like, 
it was funny enough where the scary parts didn't feel as scary to me compared to something like Alice in Wonderland, which as you know, documented in the previous episode of our show is not a movie that I enjoy. and still a movie I, I find more stressful than funny. Whereas this is a movie, you know, racial issues and some gender issues aside, everything between Hook and Smee still makes me laugh to this day. You know, their, their dynamic and the dynamic with the crocodile, all that stuff works very, very well. I actually laughed out loud when Hook murders the pirate who is uh, singing with the... It's not an accordion. It's it's whatever the smaller one is. I, I can't remember what it, what the what that instrument is called. But, you know, he's like singing about a pirate's life and sitting up on the crow's nest. And Hook is like, just shoots him. <laughs> and you hear him splash in, in the water. Those kinds of gags really work. And, and that is, you know, darkly funny. But I think this blending of styles makes it feel like there's like a lot more, it makes it feel like more happens in the story than actually happens when you do like a plot breakdown. I definitely get that. And I, I do enjoy the way that it kind of jumps back and forth. One thing I'll say, bringing it back to the book again, apparently that's all I'm going to talk about today. In the book, there's a lot of the adventures that they don't even go into. Basically, the narrator says like, oh, what story shall I tell you about Peter Pan and the children? I could tell you about when he rescued Tiger Lily. Ah, I don't know. I could tell you about when he fought the pirates this way. Ah, that, that's kind of boring. And, and so there was a point where they had to expand it and really build things themselves. And then there were points where things were very well mapped out. So a lot of the kind of dynamics between Hook and Smee are in the book, which I love. There's a point which is very creepy and Oedipal where basically the pirates decide they're going to kidnap Wendy, not to get at Peter, but just because they want a mom and, and they're sad that they don't have moms. And at one point Smee goes, oh, I don't really remember what a mom is. And there's just this line where it's like, and at that point, Wendy decided that he was her favorite. It didn't matter if he was killing people. She held a dear, uh, you know, loving spot for Smee in her heart. And I feel like that, that definitely translated in the, like, Smee's just trying to, like, be a good assistant and, and do his job. And then Hook is off doing, you know, God knows what, trying to kill Peter in increasingly malicious ways. It just, it, it definitely gives these really interesting points where the, the Disney company and the animators and the story writers had to completely flesh out some stories. And then others, they had some great, you know, inspiration to pull on. As, as I recall, there was basically nothing in the what makes the red man red that came from the book. There were other horribly racist things. For instance, they name, instead of Little Flying Eagle, I think is, is his new name in the movie, he was the Great White Father in the book, which is just awful. That's like doubling down on being problematic. All, all of this to say, you know, in, in the good and in the bad, some of it's great source material. Some of it is, you know, the Disney crew just building some really fantastic characters and beats. And then, you know, there were awful things in the source material. And Disney, like, 
you know, Disney doubled down on that. And I am just really grateful that they did not use the phrase, you know, the great white father, which apparently Barry considered actually naming the novel, the great white father. Wow. That is, that would be a problem. I do really like that the bit about the pirates and Wendy and them wanting her to be their mother does come up in the Your Mother and Mine sequence. And we do even get Smee having a chest tattoo that says mother, which is really great. And I, I actually, while I was looking for stuff online, saw a Google image of somebody who has a tattoo of Smee looking at his tattoo <laughs> of mother on them. Uh, and I think that is actually a great idea. And I'm glad that somebody out there has that sort of meta tattoo of a tattoo of a tattoo. <laughs> and and Smee's also just really cute in his design. Uh, and, and part of this, I think, interplay between Captain Hook and Mr. Smee, you know, comes from the source material, but also comes from who was animating them. So Frank Thomas was in charge of animating Captain Hook. Ollie Johnston was in charge of Mr. Smee. They co-wrote The Illusion of Life together. They were, of the nine old men, I get the impression that they were sort of the closest friends. And they basically drew those characters as caricatures of themselves. And so Thomas is drawing himself into Captain Hook. Johnston is drawing himself into Smee. And it just, knowing that, I think, adds another even... A, a bigger layer into you know the interplay between these two characters and these two animators and these two friends and it just it makes all those scenes even funnier also note this version is the first to have hook missing his left hand because they wanted him to be able to uh, like gesticulate and use his right hand normally that is also called out by wendy in the nursery at the beginning because she has john switch uh, hangers or switch hands, which which hand is holding the hanger for Hook's, to represent Hook's hook. Uh, and at least Wendy is sticking to the source material that she's familiar with, uh, even if Disney is changing things left and right to make it suit their story. I do think that would be an interesting thing to trace in the adaptations, because canonically in like the plays and stories, the original, it was Hook's right hand because that makes sense. That would be most people's sword hand, especially at that point in time. So why would you cut off the non-sword hand? But I know that many adaptations stuck with the left-handedness. So while a lot of the adaptations kind of play with different elements from the source material versus Disney, I do kind of want us all to be watching in the Adaptation Clashes episode to see basically which hand is the hook. I know that once upon a time, it was the left hand, and they gave a reason for it, because again, it makes very little sense that his left hand would be cut off if his sword hand is his right hand. So I, I would be interested to see how much Disney was able to influence things just by having Wendy reprimand her brothers about which hand is which. It is also, I think, easier for the actors uh, in live action versions who, you know, most actors, most people, I would say, are right handed. And so I think that that maybe helps uh, a lot as well. You know, but in terms of the expense to hundreds of artists worked on this, there are nearly a million drawings. This is really maybe the high point of this era of Disney in terms of just the overall like 
lavish expense that was spent here compared to some of the other movies that we've talked about. And I think, especially in the backgrounds and the environment designs and the level of detail here, that feels true to me because one thing that we talked, I think we talked about a little bit in both Cinderella and Alice is that there's a lot of time where the backgrounds are almost blank and it, it works. That That's not actually a critique of those movies. I think for the style that they're using, that actually works really well. But here, everything feels like it's fully drawn and fully detailed. Yeah, and I think that part of that is just they had so many drawings over that period of time that even if they were changing the what the characters were doing or which characters were there, as we're going to talk about in just a minute, you know, John wasn't even in the movie for the first like 10 years of production. They were able to, because of the multiplane camera and some of the ways that they worked with that, they were able to keep the backgrounds that they created back in those early days, back in late 30s, early 40s, and keep all of that detail that we come kind of came to expect with those first five main features. Yeah, and, and so over the course of this long production history, because again, this comes out in 1953, and technically we're barely up to World War II at this point in the film's history, uh, for those keeping score at home. And so like, there were many, many alternate versions. As Ward Kimball told Taylor White in an interview, quote, I can remember it went through at least two or possibly three false starts early on. Walt would look through the different story versions to give it the old ho-hum every time. The talk among the crew at the time was either that he wasn't satisfied with it or maybe he just wasn't ready for it, which I think speaks a lot to all you know, the quotes we have from Walt as well. At one point in time, Walt considered Mary Martin for the role of Peter. Uh, she became the iconic stage voice of the character, but told her that she sounded too mature. Gene Arthur uh, reached out to Walt to get, uh, and asked to be considered for the role of Peter Pan. Walt asked Harry Grant about voicing Captain Hook, and he was kind of interested. But I think by the time this movie actually gets put together formally, that you know, that opportunity had sort of passed. You know, I think as Megan, as you mentioned earlier, in the first story treatment for the animated adaptation, the film did adapt Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens with a sequence that starts in Neverland with the Lost Boys and them feeling like something is missing. And then Peter going to get Wendy and, and sort of kidnap her to bring her to Neverland to placate them. So there's a great bonus feature that was done for one of the DVD releases of Peter Pan, but it's also available on YouTube called The Peter Pan That Almost Was. Uh, It's sort of hosted by Ron Clements and John Musker. Uh, You may know them as the directors of such other Disney animated films as The Great Mouse Detective, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Treasure Planet, Princess and the Frog, and Moana. And so, you know, you have these two, you know, people who know their animation and are basically at the top of their generation of animators talking about versions of Peter Pan that never were, which is just really fun. And and they're just, I mean, they're two just very charming people on camera, honestly, uh, for animation directors. But one of the ideas was that the whole film was going to be told from Nana the dog's point of view. And that she was going to join them on Neverland and be very skeptical when there was an imaginary meal that was served with an invisible bone on a plate for her. (laughs) And then, you know, similar, like even when John was in the story, there was uh, a bunch of iterations where John didn't get to come to Neverland, even though Nana did, because uh, there's one where Peter Pan looks into his dreams and he is 
imagining himself grown up to be the image of his father and he's sitting there doing like calculations at a desk in an office and peter pan is like this kid's too boring for neverland we're gonna leave him behind i kind of love that idea i mean it's that's a horrible deviation although i will say it's a great contrast to michael's dream which was like you know i want to be fighting and like i think he had like a, a pet I don't know. He was just, he was dreaming like the adventure of Neverland, which did such a good job kind of capturing the different sides of it. One thing that I will say I really appreciate, as, as we'll talk about in, a, in part two, there are a lot of things I don't necessarily love in the translation from kind of the, the play and the movie and the book to the movie. I love the idea that Wendy had to move out of the nursery the next day, and that was her officially growing up for two reasons. Number one, I feel like it really drives home kind of the idea of kind of this anxiety and conflict over growing up. Um, I also just love the idea that it was more of a, like, arbitrary decision of, like, when do we choose to throw her in another room? Rather than, you know, the classic, like, hey, you got your period. You're a woman now. And, and as arbitrary as it is to be like, grr, you told a story. You must be woman now. I still like that better than, than what a lot of other people do about, you know, growing up. But I feel like that set up a good stage, even with Wendy not being, you know, as, as powerful as she is in the book. For Wendy to really be kind of the the portal for the viewer, that she is the child on the brim of growing up, whereas the boys are both kind of accepted as being boys. They, they still have time before they have to grow up. So even if John wants to be an adult, wants to be his father, he is still a kid kind of at soul. And that's kind of just this way of having us relate to Wendy so much as this kind of character torn between childhood and adulthood. I'm going to try to keep this particular, I'm going to try to not fully step up on this soapbox because it's going to end with me trashing C.S. Lewis again. <laughs> but I, I do want to say I, I like that it's metaphor. It's, I like that it's a little more metaphorical Wendy's uh, moving out of the nursery into adulthood that it isn't quite as, I'm not going to say graphic because, you know, 51% of the population or at least 50% of the population, you know, menstruates and at some point in their life. So, like, I think that's fine to include it in, you know, it certainly worked in Turning Red. Like, I, I have no opposition to it as part of the story. But I think here, because Neverland is such a metaphor for so many things, I think it's playing a little fast and loose with it, I think makes sense, you know, but there's so much in these stories and there's so much in the way that boys and girls are socialized in different ways that like, you know, I, I think of, uh, like, I only have a younger brother, but I, I went to a Catholic high school and thus know people with much larger families. And, you know, the older girls in those families would basically help raise the younger kids and they would become mothers a lot earlier in their life, so to speak. Whereas, you know, 
the oldest son would basically still just be a boy until like they went to college. <laughs> like, you know, the responsibility wasn't there. Uh, and I think it's interesting in the ways that Wendy is sort of mothering Michael and John in small ways. And I don't think in, in bad ways, but she is sort of looking after them in the nursery. She is reading them stories. She's brought there as a mother because Peter sees her and associates her with being a mother even more than the literal mother in that household. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's so many levels. We we could have an entire podcast just on the gender dynamics of Peter Pan because there are so many different angles to it. I guess for me, you know, there's nothing against menstruation as a concept. I suppose for me, I, I dislike it as being you're an adult now because it's so heavily tied to your only value as a woman is to birth children. Whereas this movie does it in a whole different way where her only value has nothing to do with, you know, her fertility. Her value is in being a mother. And again, the book and the movie have different kind of perspectives on whether that's a good or a bad thing. I, I would like us to, I would like to hope that we're in the age where women are allowed to just like exist because they are humans. But there definitely is kind of this, this dimension to it that I think to some extent, Wendy is choosing to be the mother figure. This is a role that she has taken on that she seems to take pleasure in. And oddly enough, her idea or her parents' idea of her growing up is actually the opposite of the parentification that you mentioned. Her dad wants her to stop talking to her brothers. He wants her to stop telling them stories. And so oddly, her being rushed into being an adult is her being rushed into kind of leaving the family. So instead of becoming their mother, she's supposed to grow up and become somebody else's mother. I, I don't know. I'm so many tangents here. There's so many different angles of kind of the gender dynamics to talk about here. Don't worry, we will be talking about the other super problematic things, most likely in the next segment of this, most likely in the part two uh, or episode two of us talking about Peter Pan. But there's just, there's so many interesting things to talk about, so many problematic things to talk about. So let's, let's deviate away from that. There's one more alternate version that I want to mention, specifically because it's another place where they deviated strongly from the source material and they had clearly considered not doing that. And it's an area that I think, I think is for the better, but, but we can discuss it. So in the book, Hook is dead. Hook is like dead, dead. They leave n nothing to the imagination on that. Like Peter stabs him. Then he puts him over to the side of the ship. He kicks him into the crocodile's mouth and the crocodile is fully satisfied with the meal. Like it's over. There's no jumping out from the other side of the crocodile like we see in the movie. And they considered that. There is alternate versions where Hook is, Hook is dead and, and even kind of graphically dead. I will say Hook's death scene is probably my favorite part of the book. But I also think that 
for what Peter Pan has become, I like it much more that he doesn't, that there's a sense of eternity to Neverland. Like if you were to go to Neverland 50 years later, Captain Hook is still there causing trouble. Even if he's not, you know, a, a good person, like he is part of the essence of Neverland, the same as Peter Pan is. And it somehow feels wrong to have a Neverland without Captain Hook. And, and I think that's because of Disney and the ways that they have kind of built up their villains and built up kind of the idea of Neverland. But that's one, one more alternate version where I love, I love Hook's death scene. It, it's, it's just, it's so good. I, I could wax poetic about it. It's, it's hilarious. And part of that is the movie completely reinvents the personality of Captain Hook which frustrates me, but with the character that he is in the movies, it makes much more sense that he, he kind of escapes and that he will constantly be tormented by the crocodile. I really like how that ties back into the this has all happened before and will all happen again. It's not that Peter Pan is in combat with a pirate. It's Peter Pan, Captain Hook. Like these things are core elements to who they are as characters and their adversarial relationship is part of the structure of ne Neverland on some level. Like it, it feels very sort of Neil Gaiman concept in terms of the way we think about stories and like thinking about American gods and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Like there's so much sort of that feels baked in that is getting at those concepts without getting as heady and, and intellectual as stuff aimed towards older audiences is. But along those lines, there's also a uh, alternate version of Peter Pan that they didn't do where the book Peter Pan is brought to Neverland and Smee is able to get his hands on it. Hook is trying to use the book to find where Peter's hideout is. So Smee rips the page out, goes to hand it to him. It gets picked up by a gust of wind, blown out the porthole of the ship, lands in the water, and the crocodile eats almost the entire page. And one, I do think that is a great gag, but it, it also, it feels very Mel Brooks or like the Muppets to me, which is not, not, the, not the kind of humor that I actually expect from Disney, especially in this era in terms of sort of that like metafictional, like, you know, the space balls of like, when will then be now <laughs> gag that they do or, you know, in the Muppet movie where they're like, what, you know, where are we supposed to go next? Oh, wait, let, let's look at the script. And they all pull out copies of the script <laughs> and they're, they're reading through it. Like it's, it's way more metafictional than, like I said, I expect from animated Disney in this era, especially, but I, I really like that inclusion and I'm, I'm not said it's not in the movie, but I like that they thought about it. I think it's a good gag. Again, I feel like it would be better if they had just stuck with it being Cinderella. In, in part because it's a good Easter egg, in part because the idea was that Peter wanted to hear stories. He needed a maternal figure. Whereas in the movie, it's like, haha, he's self-centered. Which uh, another thing in the, you know, Peter Pan that never was is... Wendy getting to yell at Peter, which I, I would love because she is vastly taken advantage of in this movie. I, I don't think that the storybook fits in this. I do think it would fit very well in Return to Neverland 
because by that point, we're, we're in the early 2000s, so parody and meta is everywhere, which admittedly might be part of the reason they didn't do it. So it, it fits the, the genre at that time. I also think it would make sense. You know, uh, part of Return to Neverland is that Jane has been kind of plagued her whole life by stories of Peter Pan. And when she was really, really little, he was her everything. And it's very much a, like, Amelia Pond from Doctor Who thing. Like, he was, he was her god. She, she worshipped him, and he didn't come. And so she got tired of waiting, and she got annoyed, and she doesn't really like him that much anymore. And I feel like in that world, it definitely makes sense that Wendy or her brothers would have written the book, and that would have been a good setup to kind of bring back in that gag. Especially because the way that uh, uh, the way that the boys end up getting trapped by the pirates is is weak narratively in Return to Neverland, and it would have been fun to have like the storybook as kind of a potential way to do it. But that's that's just me. Like I said, having way too many thoughts on Peter Pan, despite really not knowing this movie apparently at all. I think one of the other core ideas that Walt was trying to get at here is not talking down to children. So there's another quote from him that I think is really good and, and says this much more explicitly. But he, he says, uh, quote, too many people grow up. That's the real trouble with the world. Too many people grow up. They forget. They don't remember what it's like to be 12 years old. They patronize. They treat children as inferiors. Well, I won't do that. Again, there's a there's a whole other podcast out there somewhere probably about you know the idea of childhood and how that's changing at this time. But I really think that what struck me about watching so many of these movies in order, you know, we've talked about Lana Patton and Bobby Driscoll, but like thinking about they make Song of the South so dear to my heart, Treasure Island, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland. These are all stories about children and have children as, you know, essentially the main characters in them, you know, Cinderella being an obvious exception, but there must have been something on Walt's mind because you know, when you think back to Snow White, you know there, there aren't really children in that story. Oh, Pinocchio, the central like he is more metaphorically a child, you know, as much as he's a literal child. You know, Fantasia really isn't about kids. Like there isn't a lot of stories told about children in early Disney, but in this, once we get into this post-war era there's a lot more stories about kids i don't know if that's because walt had become a dad and like his kid like he was reading these stories to his kids and also recollecting his memories it's just an interesting trend that i noticed and that quote really made me think about it yeah i think that part of it is the industry as we've talked about a few times as we go into the 50s cartoons weren't as much a thing of the movie theaters as they were television and on television, they were considered children's media much more than they were adult media. So I think part of that is the era. But I think that also there's just so much of Walt trying to figure out something that he's lost. He, he has his children, but he's not a child anymore. And he's watching them grow up before his eyes. And we've talked many times before about his rampant nostalgia for childhood. I think that, you know, this is a combination of the industry says we should talk about kids and Walt saying, I, I miss that. 
getting to that point where he's like, okay, I'm officially at adulthood, adulthood. And I never really got the chance to be a kid. If you go back through his own history, he, you know, wanted to be involved in World War I before he was even able to. He was, you know, put into jobs and work before he was the age that we nowadays would associate with working eligible age. I think that to some extent, Walt was hitting that stage in his life where he realized that he never would get to be a kid again and was really searching for the chance to find that in himself. I don't know if, if he ever got to try that, but I really feel that Walt Disney would have appreciated that Apple Jacks don't taste like apples. Like, I feel like he'd really be into that <laughs> as a concept, as a way to reclaim some of his inner childhood. But yeah, I, I, I think that's a very good point. And I think there's, it's so interesting just going through this whole project and one sort of being able to trace this, you know, with Walt through the making of all these movies and his nostalgia and everything. And then also like the movies that jump out more now than they did before this project in terms of like being like key pivotal movies within this whole sort of Disney studio history. Like the reluctant dragon is one that we talk about all the time. I now think about so dear to my heart, like constantly while when watching these movies and researching for the podcast, because it's so I identify it now so closely with Walt. It's just interesting what jumps out that I wouldn't have never expected. And again, to me, makes this a very worthwhile project. But ju- jumping ahead until after the war in 1947, they finally returned to planning for their next big feature film, which Peter Pan was seriously considered for. So after World War II, Walt demanded that Jack Kinney animate sequences once they were approved sequentially, that they weren't going to wait on a full script, but they were going to like approve one part, animate it, approve the next part while that was being animated, and then draw the next uh, sequence. Walt also refused to see any of the work while it was in progress. And then after six months, 39 storyboards, and 100 sketches, Jack Kinney makes a two and a half hour presentation to Walt. He wraps up this whole thing. He's been working on this for six months. They've been working really hard, pushing ahead. Walt sits there silently, drums his fingers and goes, you know, I've been thinking about Cinderella. (laughs) And I can't imagine how demoralizing that would be if I, you know, worked on six months for something because my boss is like, this is the next thing we're going to do. It's all yours, Ryan. Like, you got this. And I come back and I'm like, "There, there you go. This is what we have. And he's like, you know what? We're not going to do that at all. Everything you did, totally not salvageable. <laughs> Forget it. And they don't pick up this movie again until Cinderella's almost done in 1949. I have had that experience in the workforce. It is it is grating in so many ways uh, because you go like, I can't even show this in the future to like my friends and family to show what I've been working on for so long because it doesn't even exist. Almost like if a movie or series that gets dropped from a streaming service suddenly. Yeah, or like if if all of your money came from, you know, reruns being on TV and then they stopped doing reruns and refused to pay you for all the people watching it on a streaming service. All of this has happened before and will happen again. <laughs> What's going to be hilarious is, uh, I, I doubt it will happen, but if by the time this is posted, the strikes are actually over because the studios have decided to be less terrible people which sadly I doubt but it'll be really funny at that point to be like oh haha let's let's 
mock the studios. Anyway, that that's a note for you, Tessa. You can cut that out. <laughs> yeah, I I can't imagine. I you know, like I said, I I did do work like that, and it was infuriating. But it's both a hilarious scene to me and an infuriating one, which to me means that it should have been in Alice in Wonderland. The idea of like working really hard for something and presenting it to the Queen of Hearts and her just being like, you know, I'm thinking croquet. I, I would have loved if somehow that transitioned in because it's, it's the perfect level of amusing and infuriating to fit what I think we, we said Alice in Wonderland was all about. But it becomes this, this really frustrating situation for them where they have so much done. As we said, the actual like designs for the characters were made 10 years ago and we still haven't actually gotten this together. So when they finally are getting back to it, Walt has learned his lesson. More or less, uh, they had been animating as they went and that took a lot of money and he was getting in trouble for how much money he was spending. And so he went the way of Cinderella, which was a cost-saving measure that they needed at this point because the budget for this movie is, is so high. He decided they were gonna do it with live action actors, which is a great way to be able to capture those uh, facial expressions and the specific details, but also to make sure that you actually know what you're animating before you animate it so you don't have a million images that don't make it into the movie. And this starts to factor into the creation of the cast for the film. Now we're going to talk about the full cast and how they got the voice actors in part two. But as the brief preview, the live action, they specifically had Bobby Driscoll as Peter and Hans Conried as Hook. And basically both of them were the live action reference and the voice. And according to Conrad, this actually lasted for two and a half years. So once they got down to it, they really spent two and a half years just making sure they had all the scenes together before they animated everything this time that really just kind of allowed them to put the pieces together. There's a lot of more things going on with the behind the scenes that gets complicated, especially as they started fighting over whether Peter should really look like Bobby Driscoll or not. But we can talk a little bit more about that uh, once we turn to the full cast next episode. I, re I read a quote from, I believe it was Ward Kimball, who basically talked about the live action shooting for these movies. And he's like, for him, it, it wasn't that they were copying what the actors were doing. It, it was reference. And they always use live drawing as reference. We talked about with Bambi, where they had live deer in the studio. But the advantage of filming it was that they could rerun it. And it wasn't just like the animators sketching out what they were doing and then having to remember what everything looked like and, you know, the scale between things and the distance apart. It was a lot easier for them to be like, oh, I want to rewatch that scene let's run that film back, you know, six months, a year after it was actually filmed. So they had the reference material to keep going back to as they were doing the animation. But the animation became a little contentious, at least over the course of uh, this period. Uh, Milk Hall announced that the animation wasn't working because the animators at the studio didn't have any talent. 
because so many of them had left to work on television and other projects. Bill Pete, however, disagreed, saying previously there had been too many cooks in the, in the kitchen, sort of. Uh, and it was actually improved by so many people leaving that could sort of corral everybody together and actually get something more cohesive out. And that does make it seem like a big contrast from Alice in Wonderland that we talked about, where, you know, each animator working on every sequence is trying to outdo the other one and get wilder and crazier. And this feels a lot more controlled and consistent all the way through. By 1951, Walt decides that, like, this movie has to be finished, whatever it takes. I feel like Roy might have decided that. (laughs) I was just about to say that. I was like, this feels like a Roy move, like a Roy ultimatum of, like, look, we're making Peter Pan. We've we've already spent too much money on it. We have to put it out. Walt, I have to tell you about sunk costs. (laughs) And Peter Pan is one of them. But yeah, Walt was getting in trouble. So so Walt decided because other people decided is probably <laughs> what happened. Even through this period, things are changing. You know, Walt, there's a quote from Walt in Walt Disney and American Original by Bob Thomas, which is one of our main sources. Walt goes, don't hesitate to reshoot anything you need. Anything you don't need, don't hesitate to throw it away after you looked at it. That is not a Walt that we've heard of in the last 10 plus years that is like a late 1930s i've got snow white cash to burn walt disney or a i'm desperate to make snow white work so that the banks won't repossess the entire studio walt disney not a we need to scrimp and save because the communists are out to get me walt disney i i think this project in so many ways is us seeing both the best of the golden era And the energy of Golden Era Walt kind of coming back for us. Because he he was willing to try things out. He was willing to change things. There was some struggle where he would get kind of randomly detached from the project, specifically on a detail, where he couldn't figure out whether it should be, you know, one way or the other. And he would just be like, "Ah, make it work, which is very Walt and not very helpful. But for instance, Captain Hook was one of these points where he couldn't decide if he should be funny or if he should be scary. And after seeing multiple drawings of each, he basically went, just pick one and go with it. I, I, I can't do this anymore. So I think he, he was willing to see multiple different versions, but he also was occasionally getting burnt out on particulars when when it was an issue that you know maybe his imagination didn't have a perfect image he he was starting to get to the point of just just finish it just give me a captain hook already and let's move forward what could be indecisive and this ultimately leads to the haunted mansion attraction and the way that we have it today in both california and florida at least you know, it wasn't completed until after Walt had passed away. But Mark Davis and Claude Coates were the two main designers. Claude Coates thought it should be a scary ride. Mark Davis thought it should be a funny ride. And so it starts scary and ends funny. And I think there is an interesting push and pull. And you get something more interesting by doing both. And I do think that this Captain Hook, you know, and we'll talk more about it in our in our part two, uh, I think, when we talk about the performance behind it, but I do think this hook is both funny and menacing, at least. I don't know if he's scary, but he's at least menacing. 
Yeah, I think that one of the things there is that Captain Hook is the antagonist, but he has an antagonist. And so that makes it difficult because he has to be scary to the kids, but also terrified of a crocodile who swallowed a clock. And, and so they, they really had to kind of balance him being the villain versus him being, you know, jumping into Smee's arms. And, and you do get at least some menacing shots of him crossed with uh, the, the funnier side of him trying desperately to escape this, this crocodile that is very single-minded. Almost uh, Jaws 2 level of, like, focus on <laughs> hunting people down. But it, it ends up kind of creating what I think works really well of having kind of this character that can play funny, that can play scary, and that is kind of the perfect foil to Peter, who is also fun and a great leader and adventurous, but also kind of terrifying. He just kills people sometimes. He just, you know, kidnaps people at times. He's very, you know, kind of mercurial that way. And I think that we have these two characters who can play it both ways. And that makes for a very interesting kind of interaction between them. Where I think there are definitely some points where we're not 100% sure who we're rooting for. Yeah, and I think, you know, the crocodile being a funny character also, you know, plays in it like because the crocodile is only scary to hook like nobody else seems particularly bothered by him which i think is a really fun detail and and i think adds to the humor of captain hook but again i, I don't think like the his and his outbursts are comedic but you can feel that they can be menacing on the drop of a hat like if he really got angry he would be a scary guy but i you know i, I think but again, I think the actual indecisiveness on Walt's part makes it a far more interesting and richer character ultimately because it has these both of these sides rather than having a single vision. Yeah, and I think that that comes back down to there were so many people, so many talented people working on this. So we've talked about Mary Blair. There are so many people that we, we can't even mention because they aren't recorded. The credits for this movie are quite long. They will have an entire page with like 20 names on it. And as one of the things that's kind of a noted fact of this, it's the last project, which is funny because the first one was only a few episodes ago, uh, but it's the last project that all of the nine old men worked on. So we get this, this kind of rich blending of different perspectives and different ideas that works in in most situations at least because it gets the best of both worlds yeah i i completely agree and i think it shows the collaborative nature of you know film as a medium and then animation in particular very well and that's that's going to take us to the end of the first part of our discussion about peter pan because there is so much more to talk about but megan i know you have a fun fact that you want to share and then you can wrap up this episode. Thank you. I, you know, I always have my little fun facts. You guys should be writing them down. One day we may quiz you on them. Hint, hint. But I, I, I like my little fun facts about where things come from and, and what we talk about. So going back to, you know, the book versus the movie versus the play. In the book, Wendy and her brothers are gone for a very long time. In the movie, 
the parents don't even know they're gone, so obviously it can't be that long. So here's, here's the fun fact on that. So as we see them kind of flying through, we can actually see what time it is on the clocks. So we can, we can look at Big Ben, we can, you know, kind of look at the different circumstances. We can see that their adventures in Neverland actually took place between 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock at night, which is a very short period of time. But it's also a very specific period of time. And the reason for it is that the three hours is the typical length of a play, or at least was the typical length of a play around J.M. Barry's time. So this was an homage to the play that, you know, you could sit down and watch a full play and with, you know, an intermission and the full length of it, it would be a three hour ride. And so in, in a way, it's, it's yet another little meta note that this movie tried to slip in that all of the adventures in Neverland are just within the span of one play. I think that's really cool. Actually, it's something I never would have noticed in a million years, despite being really enamored with the way that they draw Big Ben in particular in in this movie. But I, I think that's really, I actually think that's a really fun and clever homage that, like I said, I, I never would have picked up on on my own. That's what I like best in Easter eggs. Marvel is is so renowned now for just like name dropping and calling that an Easter egg. And, and I like that there are Easter eggs, you know, back then that you could miss a million times. That it's not just, oh, that's a name that I don't know unless I read the comics. It's a, you have to search. You have to find these little details and figure out what they mean. And I just, I, I find it really cool, especially since we've talked about the source material being such a, like, weird situation for Peter Pan uh, and the various kind of versions it has. So all of that being said, those of you who wanted to hear me say good things about Peter Pan, this is the episode. And episode two is going to have a bunch of really good things and us talking about the really bad things. So, so be prepared that when you watch Peter Pan, there is a warning. And this is your warning. Part two is going to deal with why there are warnings and what this movie does not do well or, or does in just flat out horrific ways. So that's coming up along with a lot of other fun facts along with the dark side. And an answer to a burning question I know Megan has, which is why is the line for this ride always, always long at the theme parks? <laughs> Many, many important things for us to cover in part two. All of that being said, we're going to close out for now. As we've said, next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we're going to stay in Neverland. We're going to finish our time with Peter Pan, find out if Faith, Trust, and Pixie Dust and all of the happy little thoughts are really the core of Peter Pan or, or if there's uh, some darker sides. In the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela.